0: Just listen to these verses from Colossians chapter 3. I think they'll come up on screen. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. Not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Well, we're continuing our series in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And Rita is going to come and read to us, uh, picking up where we just left off in chapter 3, reading from verse 5.
1: So, um, Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5 to 17. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these in the life you once lived, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.
2: Father, as we come to your word now, may the message of Christ dwell among us richly. Lord, we pray that you would give us a greater sight of Christ, a greater view of your glory in him. Amen. I wonder if you've ever come across the criticism of Christians that goes like this. He's so heavenly minded that he is of no earthly use. Perhaps you've felt that about some Christians you know. Perhaps you've even been accused of it yourself. But it's a perception that some people have about Christians, and therefore about what Christianity is all about, that because we are focusing on spiritual things, that we kind of disengage from everyday life, that we're focused so much on heaven, on thinking about the return of Christ, we're so future-focused, we're looking forward, that we don't really have a lot to do with the present, that we're not very practically engaged with the world. And that saying, so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly use, comes from a misunderstanding of the verses that we've been reading today of Colossians 3, which begins like this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds On things above, not on earthly things. Seems very clear command for heavenly mindedness, not earthly mindedness. But I think we'll see as we really dig deeper into what Paul is saying here, that what Paul intends here is actually the complete opposite of no earthly use. Rather, he is making a point that Once our hearts are properly set on the things that are above, we will be of better earthly use. That's where we're going. And remember, this is part of the flow of a bigger point that he's been making in the whole letter. So, back in chapter 1, Paul introduced us to this big view of Christ, of what I've been calling this colossal Christ who stands astride the universe in complete rule, in complete victory over everything. Everything is to be reconciled in him. Everything is made by him. Everything exists for him. It is all slowly coming towards him. But then there's that gap between that view of Christ and what we see when we look around the world is which that, that view of Christ is not recognized. There are, Christ is Lord, but he is not yet fully seen as Lord. So there's this gap between Jesus Christ over all and Jesus Christ known to all. And he's been really exploring what it is like to live in this gap for us. He's, he's been explaining how it drives his own work, how he's committed his life to kind of closing the gap to to letting more and more people know about Jesus. He's also warned in chapter 2 about our tendency to fill that gap with other things instead of filling it with the knowledge of Christ, filling it with other kinds of knowledge, earthly knowledge, religious routines, spiritual speculations. And now, in chapter 3, he's going to show us how to properly cross the gap, how to get from a place where Christ is not known as Lord to a place where he is known as Lord. And I find it helpful to picture this. It's kind of like crossing a river. Have you ever been hiking and you come across a stream that you need to cross? You have to start by looking across it. You have to look across to see on the other side, is it worth crossing? Do I, do I want to put myself through the effort of perhaps jumping, perhaps wading through? Is there something on the other side that is worth crossing the river for? Look across. And here Paul is saying, look up. Look what's on the other side. We start to cross the gap between Christ as Lord and knowing Christ as Lord by looking up across the gap to see Christ as Lord. But there's an interesting dynamic here because we are seeing Jesus from two angles in these opening Verses. In verse 2, we are kind of looking up to Christ who is in heaven at the right hand of God. We're called to set our minds on things above. But also in verse 1, it says, You have been raised with Christ. So we are also with Jesus, we're not just looking at him from afar. To return to that picture of of crossing the river, what helps us to cross is knowing that in a sense, we have already crossed it. We're we're with Jesus who is on the other side of the gap. Verse three, he says, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That is where you belong. I love that language of being just hidden with Christ, of that that safe, safe embrace. A part of us is already there. We say that about places where we we go to on really good holidays or or perhaps our hometown if we had a really good experience and a real fondness for where we grew up. Even when we leave, we say, a part of me is still there. Only it's much more powerful than that here. Paul is talking about our union with Christ, about how our souls, our inner lives have been joined with Christ forever. So he writes to a different church, to the Ephesian Christians, and he says, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So when we are are setting our our minds on things above and and we're picturing Jesus Christ on the throne, of heaven, we are also picturing ourselves there with him, seated there at his feet. That's why we can pray. Because we are in his presence. We are welcomed at the throne of Christ. So the gap is not as large as it first seems. That's not to say that there is no gap This is one of the tensions of the Christian life that we are with Jesus now, but there is a more full version of this yet to come. That's what he talks about in verse four. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so to start with, if we want to cross this gap, is to look across the gap, to set our hearts and our minds on things above, to, to keep in our minds this is who we are, that not only is Jesus in this great elevated position above the universe, but that we are with him there. Set our hearts on that. Set our minds on that. And we can sometimes get a bit too technical about the distinction between heart heart, and mind. I think each is just describing our, our inner life from a different angle. There are different kind of facets of the same thing. The mind is focusing on, on that, our rationality, on the way that we think, and the heart is focusing more on the, the deep seat of our affections, the, the, the location of our deepest desires, our longings. And Paul calls for all of this for a whole inner life to be oriented towards Christ. To be oriented up, not down. To Christ, not to earth. And then he kind of switches pictures and visualizes it like this set of clothes that you take off. And a new set that you put on. In verse 9 he says, you have taken off your old self with its practices, take off earthly-mindedness. Let's come back to this river that we're trying to cross. And just imagine by some weird quirk of geography that it has a completely different climate on either side of the river. Where you started, it is this frozen, cold wilderness where nothing lives, just covered in snow and ice, but over the river, as you look across, you can see it's green, it's tropical, it's warm, it's full of trees, it's full of fruit, it's brimming with life. And you're, you're stood there on this side with your, with your thick coat on, with your snowshoes, and you're not going to need those when you cross the river. They'll be unnecessary on the other side in fact they'll be counterproductive they will make you look foolish they will make you feel out of place they will work against you on the other side and they're only going to weigh you down as you try and cross this river so ditch them Paul says and these clothes their their attitudes their ways of operating in our minds and our hearts which result in practices and behaviors and he gives two lists of these attitudes in verse 5 and 6 and then verse 7 to 9. And the first, in 5 to 6, we can kind of broadly group together as desires that degrade. Ways, ways of, of, of thinking, of being in our hearts that, that degrade or demean other people. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's the assumption of that phrase So heavenly minded, we are of no earthly use. That if we focus on earthly things, it will do more good on earth. Paul goes the opposite way. He says it is the earthly nature that produces corrupt ways of relating to each other. He describes these behaviors as belonging to our our earthly nature because they all involve ignoring that spiritual part of us, that we are made in the image of God, that we were designed to resemble and relate to God. And when the the relationship with God breaks down, the resemblance also breaks down, and we also lose that view of others as made in the image of God. We start to see them in a very utilitarian way, that, that they exist simply as objects, for our pleasure, whether that is our sexual pleasure or are simply lesser beings to exploit in our greed to get what we want. These are sins against people in God's image. Therefore, they are sins against the God whose image it is. They bring the wrath of God. They are idolatry because they put created things, things on earth, in the place of highest honor in our hearts. Now we don't have time to dwell on these these lists in detail, but it's well worth going through them on your own this week and just asking, is there something in me that is relating to other people in these ways? Is my focus on earthly pleasure, on what I can get from other people for my pleasure? perhaps my sexual pleasure or perhaps it's a greedy accumulating of material things greed can be about food it can also be about just stuff about wanting to have more and more it doesn't matter who I step on to get more and more are these not the old you? Are these not the old earthly you? Are they not weighing you down? Are they not counterproductive as you cross the river to knowing Jesus more? So the first list is about desires that degrade. The second list, I think, although there's some overlap between the two, is about desires that divide us from others. These are kind of about the ways that we relate to each other either resentfully or dishonestly. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. As I said, there's an overlap between these these things, these lists. It's the same breakdown in the relationship with God resulting, spilling over into breakdowns in our relationships with others. How making room in our hearts for for anger, for, for just allowing grudges and resentfulness to simmer away for hours, for days, for weeks, for months, for years... How it's an earthly mindedness that is actually doing harm on earth. Or how when we lie to each other, when we deal with each other dishonestly, all we, can, we, we can never have a community, we can never trust each other. When we relate to each other in these earthly ways, the only community we will ever manage to build is only ever going to be a performance of one, a performance of unity, a fractured hollow performance of unity that that will just shatter at any moment. Take off these behaviors because they belong on that cold, wintry side of the river that you don't belong on anymore. We belong on the tropical side now. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. These things are characteristic of who you were before you met Jesus, not who you are now. Not where you're headed. These are ways you used to walk, but, but Christians know that in order to cross the gap between Christ as Lord and Christ known as Lord, we first need to take off earthly mindedness. To put to death whatever it is in our lives that belongs to the old self, to the cold land. Take off the desires that degrade. Take off the desires that divide. Leave no room in your heart for them. Take off earthly mindedness and put on heavenly mindedness. What do we put on in its place? put on the right clothes for the climate that we're entering into. It's tropical over there. Ditch the snowshoes. Get a sun hat. What are these new clothes? Verse 10. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. The new self, the new you, the Christian you is defined by that restoring of the image of God in you. That image that was always still there but was kind of marred and obscured by sin. And Christ has come as, as the master painter to restore that image in you. And that renewal happens as you grow in knowledge, as you grow in knowing him more. This new self is defined by you being hidden with Christ in God and it is developed by you growing in appreciating that, in knowing Christ. And that takes place in each one of us in our hearts. But there's also a a collective renewing that takes place in the community of all those who are hidden in Christ. And that renewing within each Christian both feeds and is fed by that collective renewing in the church. And so Paul starts to, to move on to how, as we are drawn to God, we will increasingly also be drawn to each other, united to each other. The, the old boundaries, the old things that divided us, are starting to be crossed starting to be broken down. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. So all is a word that is used so much in Colossians. Christ is all. He is everything that matters and Christ is in all. He is in the Jew. He is in the Gentile. Whoever comes to him in faith, he is in. Every believer has this belonging to Christ, this hiddenness in Christ equally. And so what does that do to our behavior? What does that, that change to how we relate to each other on the earth? Verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The old self, the old you, degraded and divided. The way of the new you follows and reflects a Christ who loves and unites all kinds of people. And the behaviors that that Paul is, is calling for here are living out what Christ has done for us, that Christ has united us, therefore be united, that Christ has loved us, therefore love us. So the new self is a self with a heart that loves like Christ. And I hope you can start to see how that heavenly mindedness is to Paul of unmatchable earthly good. Because only when we are united with the Christ who is Lord over this earth can relationships on this earth function properly. Only in remembering the unity that we have in heaven, our hiddenness together in Christ, there we have a powerful motive to love one another here on earth. And so ultimately this list of behaviors, this list of commands, if you like, is, is, it's really about letting the way that Christ has treated you shape the way that you treat others. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace forgive as the Lord forgave you. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, put on love. That language of God's chosen people was used in the Old Testament to describe Israel. In the New Testament, it is applied to the church. Paul is writing here to a local church, to Christians in a local church. This is a challenge for all of us. Let the way that Christ has loved you shape the way that you love others in the church. Is he really doing that to to cling on to a grudge when Jesus had far more that he could have held against me and yet chose not to? Can it not give me an extra measure of patience when I get frustrated with someone if I just think on how patient the Lord has been with me? Setting our minds on things above makes us the opposite of no earthly use. It gives us this incredibly positive basis to relate to each other on the earth. And here the focus is within the church. But Paul has already told us in chapter one that he has a very expansive intention for that. He wants to see the knowledge of Christ extended to every corner of the earth, to every nation. He wants the church to have an open door with this love. To see it grow, to see it take in all kinds of people because Christ loves all kinds of people. Hearts that love like Christ. But what if we're not there yet? What if we don't feel that we've quite got hearts that love like Christ? How can we get there? Let's come back to the love of Christ. The only way we are going to love like Christ is if our hearts are captivated by the love of Christ. And I chose that word captivated deliberately because it carries that sense of, of affection, of being filled with wonder and delight, of really just, just having our eyes fixed on Christ, of not being able to take our eyes off him. How do we get captivated? How do we set our minds on things above? How do we set our hearts on things above? Verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. We set our minds on Christ above by hearing the message of Christ above. And that's fairly straightforward, but it's interesting to me that Paul mentions not only the more kind of cerebral ways in which we might do that, in which we might let a message sink in, teaching, admonishing. These engage the mind. But Paul also wants the heart set on things above. I think that's why... He talks about singing here, singing psalms from Scripture, singing hymns and songs shaped by the Spirit who wrote the message of Christ down in Scripture. He's saying that music holds a special place in our growing in the knowledge of Christ because it does so well at engaging us as full people. Think about it, we can be moved to tears even by instrumental music. But then what happens when we add to that the power of the life-giving message of Christ? The Bible, truth. What an incredible thing. And song is a perfect medium for the message of Christ because there are some things that spoken word just can't really do justice to isn't responding to the love of God that Christ showed on the cross one of them? When we put that to music, it stirs us, it touches us in in deeper ways than simply just saying it. It engages us more, more of us as a person, our minds, our hearts, our bodies even. I can stand and and speak about the message of Christ to you now and, and hopefully your ears and your minds are engaged. But when we sing, we bring in our vocal cords. We bring in more of our bodies. We bring in our ears still because we're hearing each other sing as we sing. Who knows, we might even raise a hand or tap a toe now and again. Music reaches us, it engages our emotions. It engages more of us in the response to Christ. If preaching Christ helps the message of Christ dwell, then then singing Christ helps that message dwell richly. And when we sing of Jesus together, we both show and we grow that unity that we have in Christ. Christ. They express the joy and thankfulness we have in Christ, and as we join with others to express that, it, it lifts us up to even greater heights of joy and thankfulness. It can even help lift us out of depths when we're struggling to feel thankful. Singing in church is an act of praise; it is done towards God singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, but it's also done to each other. It is one of the ways in which we teach and admonish one another here. So never underestimate the good that it can do for your soul to simply come to church and hear the singing. When you're struggling to feel thankful, when you're you're finding it hard to see across the river, to see the goodness of God, to see Christ as Lord, never underestimate the power of simply hearing the church sing that. And also never underestimate the good that it can do for others' souls when you come and add your voice to the church as we sing. Paul closes his call to be captivated by Christ's love with this summary in verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the guiding principle of it all. This is, this is the goal of for those who are captivated by Christ's love. It is this, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. It's one of those Christian phrases that often gets thrown around a lot, often gets tagged on to the end of our prayers, sometimes as a magic spell, that if we, if we end our prayers within Jesus' name, well, Jesus has to give it us, didn't he? Because he said, Whatever you ask in my name. Or sometimes we just tag it on without really any thought. It's kind of holy punctuation as, as a, a formulaic symbol that, that my, my prayer is drawing to a close now. The problem with, with both of these ways of, of using in Jesus' name is that they don't actually take Jesus' name very seriously. You can put it at the end of your prayers. I'm not against that. But wouldn't it be great if we put in Jesus' name at the start of our priorities instead of using it like holy punctuation or a magic spell to have it be like a filter full of coffee that everything else that we think and do passes through. Everything that passes through the coffee filter comes out tasting of coffee. And what if everything that we thought and did passed through the in Jesus name filter? Wouldn't it come out tasting of Jesus? In the Bible, someone's name is their reputation. It is everything that they are. It is everything that they do. And in Colossians, Jesus has a huge reputation. Jesus' name is the image of the invisible God. It is the firstborn over all creation, the head of the body, the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. He is the one who everything and everyone in the universe is made by and for and is slowly but surely being drawn towards he is the majestic one who reigns over his universe in love from a cross. His glory is in his suffering for us, his self-giving love for us. And as we look on that love, as we are captivated by that love, as we, as we even sing that love, of that love to each other, let our every thought and our every action pass through that filter. Is this thought that has come into my mind honoring to the Jesus who loved me, who died for me, who has drawn me together with other Christians to be one people in him? Is this action that I'm considering, this thing that I'm about to do, reflective of who I am in Christ now, of who he is and everything that he wants me to be? Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, what an honor it is to be seated with Christ, to be in Him and in your presence, to come before you as our holy everlasting Father, to come before you in all your glory and all your goodness and purity and not be turned away, but be welcomed in Christ. Lord, this is who we are now, but we confess that so often it is not how we have lived. And so often we have fallen short of everything that you have made us. That even though our old self has been crucified with Christ, has been put off We keep going back to these behaviors that that characterized it. Lord, we thank you for your patience with us, for your love for us, for your mercy and grace in Christ. And Lord, we pray that as we grow in the knowledge of him, we would increasingly be more like him, that you would teach us to love as he loves. And Lord, may everything that we think, may everything that we do be captivated by the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.